I did want to get just a little bit of an update from the suburbs. How is the reality versus the delusion? Well, I'm sitting here on my deck in Scarsdale. Sorry, there's like a lawnmower. Hey, Matt LeBlanc here. My best friend Marcus has recently ended his 20-year career as a proper New Yorker, which means he and his family moved out of the city and into a house in the suburbs, which evidently created an explosion of new delusions. You can find that whole story in our feed. It's called Brooklyn Time Capsule. But essentially, Marcus feared Scarsdale, that the place would be too conservative for them, that he and his wife wouldn't connect with the people. It's people that I call Michaels and Jessicas, which are like the kind of people who live in Scarsdale, basically. Yeah. He hadn't even spent one night there yet, but he had already made up his mind. This is not a cool place. Yeah. But only three weeks into their new suburban life, here is Marcus to dive deeper into the delusion and talk to us a little bit about the reality versus his expectation. All of my expectations have not been met, although I have like a very funny sort of postscript to all of this, which is I have three neighbors next door, across the street, and kitty corner across the street who are all called Michael. Um <laughs> which is insane. To my embarrassment, I mean, none of them are at all the kind of Michaels I've described. They're all like very weird, interesting people, which is sort of very similar takeaway to the idea of uh, why storytelling is important. Like all these people are obviously like three-dimensional human beings who are like nice, interesting people. I was right about the part that didn't matter at all, which is that they're all called Michael. But the, the actual substance of what I was saying was completely wrong. All of my neighbors have been incredibly warm and uh, helpful. And I mean, that all of that's been like a pleasure. Everyone's been super friendly. The experience has been amazing. The kids are like r much happier. Marcus and his wife have two little boys. They were a big motivation to move out of the city. His other big concern was his wife. She had grown up in a city outside of America and has spent her whole life living in cities. So aside from introducing her to the American suburbs, she also doesn't drive. Marcus was nervous. How was this all going to shake out? Was she going to like the people? Was he going to like the people? How was she going to get around? Could their little family survive this extreme change in environment? The first day we moved in, the neighbor came over and I heard her and Esther talking about composting. So I was like, okay, it's good. Esther found her people. <laughs> everybody's super friendly. Everybody's young and wearing cool glasses. I mean, I don't know if these people are going to become lifetime friends, but Esther's like definitely doing much better than I thought. It, or is adjusting faster than I thought she would be in that way. She got her learner's permit. Hey, that's uh, great. So that, she hasn't bought a bike, but she did get her learner's permit. I guess the, the moral of the story is like no one is at all as douchey as I thought they would be. Have you been to the hardware store? Many, many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was real. Just yesterday with my father, in fact. So to the extent that I was having like stress diarrhea because I was having to like be at a hardware store with my dad for three hours. Yeah. Well, my dad just talked and talked and talked about like every single thing in the store. And I just like, I pretended to be interested up until the point that I just couldn't pretend to be interested anymore. And then I went <laughs> silent and he didn't even care. He just kept going. The pizza's not great. Yeah, the pizza, I would say, disappointing. We're like cooking. We have this like beautiful kitchen in our house. We're like, we're not like eating out a lot. So it's it's honestly, the food has been kind of a non-issue. And there's like dope supermarkets everywhere where you can buy like pasta from Italy that was made like yesterday for also way too much money. There's been a lot of financial sobering up, which I don't know if like that's worth like going into great detail about. But the, the only thing that I had not expected sort of stupidly is it is grotesquely more expensive than we thought it was going to be. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I am your host, Matt LeBlanc, and I like to think I'm a little bit of Chandler meets Monica. But truthfully, all parts of my personality are represented in the six characters from Friends. They're universal archetypes. 
This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. And surprise, you are listening to our season one finale, folks. For those of you who come and sit with me every week, this is our 20th episode of the show. And I'm very proud to offer you three different acts this week, different stories with four different voices, all surrounding the delusion of friendship, beginning with the most literal iteration. To start us off, let's hear from a very special guest, my mom. This is Dottie LeBlanc reading from her 35-year-old mommy journal. Mom? I've always heard of kids having imaginary friends, but it really is a comedy to experience. Rick is your friend when your cousin Abby's not here and your brother Michael's in bed napping. You talk to him, ask him questions, get into many arguments with him. You're always coming to me saying, Mommy, Rick called me a baby. Rick wasn't playing fair. Rick seems to do a lot of the things that you're learning are wrong. Rick was apparently the imaginary friend that I used to work out all of my feelings about the rules that I had been learning. So while I have always been a big rule follower myself, Rick was there to test the limits for me. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't always pick up his toys, but you still like him and he always comes with us to the grocery store, to the duck pond, or to grandma's. He was shy there and hid behind the TV. (laughs) I can't help but wonder if I was the one that wished that I was hiding behind the TV. (laughs) Imaginary friends are like unconscious alter egos. Ego being the key word. The imaginary friend feels like it's like very early form of delusion. And so Freud has this theory that we've, I think I've actually talked about before called the omnipotent fantasy, which is that like part of like being a child is like this fantasy that you basically do on some level. It's sort of a paradox because you're aware that like you're surrounded by giant grownups who could like rip you limb from limb if they wanted to. On the other hand, kids also have this capacity where like they, they do on some level have this fantasy that they basically control the entire world that like, you know, when they fall asleep, nothing happened. You know, when you're a little kid, you sort of imagine you go to school and your parents just like sit at the kitchen table, not moving, drinking coffee for eight hours until you come home. Like nobody has a life basically outside of you. And so imaginary friends are an interesting kind of like go between where it's like it is this thing that you have like total, you know, dominance over. Omnipotence is defined as having the feeling of unlimited power and potential. So super delusional. Here is what a quick Google search had to say. Fantasies of omnipotence grow out of feelings of helplessness. We are all born helpless, completely dependent on others for nurture and survival. And we all must face the ultimate annihilation of self at the end of life. Wow, Google, that got dark. I mean, that's kind of the hook with uh, necessary delusions is that, I mean, an imaginary friend isn't a necessary delusion in the kind of adult way that we talk about it. But in some ways, it's like the architecture of what all delusion kind of is, like the idea that you can sort of make up this whole set of circumstances and orient your life around these circumstances, even though you've completely made them up. Then one day, Rick moved. His whole family moved, and you were very sad. You were at the duck pond telling Grandma how sad you were when, all of a sudden, there he was. You got so excited that he moved back. The stories are all so transparent. Listen to that. For some reason, I had Rick move away. Maybe I thought I didn't need him anymore. But then, as soon as I decided that I was too sad that he was gone, boom, 
There he was with his whole imaginary family standing right in front of us because they had decided to move back. Very convenient. Delusion! It's lonely. I mean, I think being a little kid is lonely. Like, Sonny has this thing with, like, the Thomas Train universe. Sonny is Marcus's five-year-old son. Sonny doesn't have imaginary friends, but he talks endlessly about Thomas Trains. And there is a kind of suspension of disbelief where it's like, we have conversations about these people as if they're really people in our lives. When in fact, they are imaginary trains with personalities. And even maybe there'll be a thing where it's like, oh, someone did something naughty, and the person who did something naughty was like, Percy the engine, as opposed to like my imaginary friend, like Jonathan, you know? Oh, right. That was my other imaginary friend. It was me, Rick, and... Jonathan joined us one night when you had trouble getting to sleep. You said you were lonely, and I said, why don't you have Rick sleep over? You point next to you, roll your eyes, and say, Rick and Jonathan are already sleeping over. They fell asleep. (laughs) Enter Jonathan. He's a lot of fun. You both have pet lions that don't have teeth and don't roar. So if Rick was kind of the bad kid that pushed the limits of getting in trouble, then Jonathan was kind of the golden child. You can tell my mom favored him. They usually ride in the car with us. Jonathan always takes his bath before you. We have to buckle his seatbelt, and once you actually had me make him a sandwich. Coincidentally, when you finished yours, you told me that he wasn't hungry and you'd eat it for him. Jonathan and Rick were both essentially iterations of myself, both boys my same age. Jonathan was blonde and Rick had dark hair. And when I really start to break it down, it's all pretty simple. Jonathan was a real rule follower, and Rick had a bit of a bad streak, the two sides of my blossoming interior life, both of them avatars for me to work out my stories and decide which person I wanted to be. But they were also just kids to hang out with before I had real kids to hang out with. The one vivid memory that I have of the three of us is standing on top of a grassy cliff in the sun, looking down at the water rushing through a creek beneath us. This memory took place entirely in my mind, of course. Some people do have imaginary friends, which like my imaginary friend is a seven foot tall cheetah who has like a sword. I mean, yours were much more like neurotic and not like psychotic in that way. But I would also, even when you say that, like a seven foot tall cheetah or whatever, if that's your imaginary friend... My first thought is, is that sort of what you think about yourself? Or are you projecting right. that idea because that's right. what you want to be? For sure. Well, Sonny and I are having this funny thing right now where Sonny, a, a thing that Sonny has been into for the last six months, I have like the entire set of Calvin and Hobbes, like that, like literally that like 800 page, like thick volume. Me and too. Sonny like loves Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Um, because of course he does, because it's like a cartoon about a five-year-old boy who has like a very active imagination. And Sonny like totally gets like, all, you know, most of it because it's like, sure, you know. So, I mean, A, there's like this issue of like Hobbes is Calvin's like imaginary friend. But that Sonny, an interesting thing about, because we talk about it and read it every single day for hours, is that like Sonny has no, I, I don't believe that he genuinely understands. He's five. You know, I, I don't believe that he genuinely understands that Hobbes, he doesn't understand the concept of like, you know, because in the comic, Sometimes Hobbes will be a stuffed animal when there are grownups in the room, and then he'll be Hobbes when he's like, like, Sonny doesn't get what an imaginary friend, like, I can't explain to him what it is in a way that he understands. Like, to him, he reads the cartoon, like, yes, there is a boy and a tiger and they're friends, and they live together in like a bedroom and sleep together every night. On some level, like a fundamental concept of the comic is like lost on him, but he also like appreciates it on a totally different level, because to him, it's like, right, obviously, obviously, your best friend is a tiger and you like, you know, play together or whatever. There's like this kind of wish, like inherent in having an imaginary friend that it's like, um, it's some aspirational, like part of who you are. 
there's the necessary delusion. It's the aspirational part of who we are. And and the, when you have sort of normal imaginary friends, you wonder if that's just like, again, a kind of loneliness in that way. And then, right, when you start having real friends, your mom kind of talks about this, like all of a sudden your imaginary friends go by the wayside. Tonight you were explaining to us, well, trying to explain something, and you kept using the word apparition with an A. I said, Maddie, tell me where you heard that word so I can figure out what it is. And you said, Jonathan always uses it. (laughs) Maybe it's operation. Weirdly enough, apparition defined as a ghost or ghost-like image of a person. Maybe it was Jonathan trying to tell me who he really was. Presently, Rick and Jonathan are both your friends. Oh, and let's not forget Nikki Anderson. One day you were carrying a gold plastic square with the impression of a smurf in it, and your Aunt Kathy asked you what it was. You said, oh, that's a picture of my girlfriend, Nikki Anderson. You carried that around for weeks. No one knows where you got the name from, but it brought many chuckles to all of us. I think there's interesting stuff to say about little kids with imaginary friends. Winnicott, who um, is a British psychoanalyst, talks about one of his central ideas was this idea called the transitional object, which I think imaginary friends kind of fall into. And your mom sort of articulates that, like the idea that before you can have real friends, you sort of like create these transitional friends who are like kind of everything you need them to be while you're sort of like figuring out who you are as a person. Transitional friends. I don't know about you, but this seems like a concept that we hang on to well into our 20s. We have talked about the friendship delusion before. When you're younger and you don't know yourself as well yet, it's just easier or it feels more necessary to keep a bunch of people around you, to keep a bunch of imaginary friends. You even hear some people break them down into different groups for different parts of their personality. See, these are my friends that I get blackout drunk with, and these are the ones that I meet for dinner when I want to act serious like I have a career, and these are the friends that I cry to, and this is the one that I sleep with in between relationships. And these are my poker friends, and those are my friends from high school. And that's like all my friends. It's like 65 people that are super, super close to me. Delusion! And will be forever. And then somewhere along the line, a lot of them just start falling away. We always blame it on a lack of time after getting married and having kids, and that's probably part of it. But for me, I realized how much of myself I was working out in those relationships and in those activities. Experimenting with my personality or trying to prove something to myself. Practicing being myself with other people. The older I get, the more I get to know myself and begin accepting who I am, and I find that I require a much smaller authentic circle. Eric Fromm, who's sort of like a psychoanalyst from the 1950s, talks about socialization in in his sort of terminology, which is also this idea that when you're a little kid in a certain kind of Western family structure, you really only have your parents and then subsequently like your siblings, you have no other relationships with other people. And that what's so important about kindergarten and why like preschool and kindergarten sort of like develop um, from like a historiographical standpoint is this idea that like children need to have relationships with other adults who are not their parents and other mm. children who aren't their siblings. And that that like begins this like developmental stage of socializations where instead of having imaginary friends who are mean to you or call you a baby or fight with you, you can actually have relationships with like real people. And then sort of because they're real people, there can be real resolutions to those disagreements. And that's when people start in a way. I mean, you can think I mean, that's the beginning of actual maturation. So it's like a very important part of um, like interpersonal like kind of development. Today, you had no one to play with. 
Mikey was in bed, and you kept asking for someone. I finally said, why don't you go under the sprinkler with Jonathan? And you said, Mom, I want someone real to play with. That's the first time you've ever acknowledged that they're not real. I kind of hate to see Jonathan and Rick go. I was actually becoming fond of them, but their replacement, Michael, is much better. My little brother. Michael is finally figuring out that this whole thing called life and you are actually seeking his company. It's so sweet, makes my heart just sing to see you brothers being so cute together. Michael adores you and runs around calling, meh, meh, you love it. Just a month ago, he was wrecking your forts. Now, you're asking him to build them with you. Daddy and I are so happy. It's so important that you two have each other. There really is nothing like family, and we hope you guys will always be close. This gets very actually kind of sad or something, but I think in some ways the idea of imaginary friends provokes kind of a question about like what actual friendship is amongst children and adults. I think about like when yeah. I was a kid, I loved um, like detective stories. And there was a book series I love called The Three Investigators, who were like three best friends who were all had a little detective agency together in San Diego, I think. And like, I didn't have three best friends who I hung out with like every day. And the three investigators had like a clubhouse inside of a like a like a dump that was like a secret like built into right. the garbage of the dump inside of like a bus they had like an office that they like worked out of that was like everything that i wanted but it's like i had like a couple friends but like my friends didn't really know each other or like each other and i didn't like love them they were like you know they were like real people so our relationships were more complicated like that idea of like even the literature kids read is like you're gonna have like a whole team of friends and like power rangers gi like any of that stuff it's like you guys are going to hang out every day for like 12 hours a day and like save the world together and like all be best friends. Like that's a thing that most people don't have. And yet, like clearly that's a wish in the same way that like a sitcom like Friends bring a completely full circle to Matt LeBlanc. <laughs> like no one in the real world has like a group of friends like that, where it's like we're three girls and three guys. We all date each other. We live across the hall from one another in an apartment building and we stay in that apartment like for 25 years and we all hang out every single day. And even though we have like busy jobs and lives and we get married and have kids, like we all still live next door to each other. And like we're all best friends in New York City. Like no one has ever had that in the history of New York like it's insane but it's like a wish that like people have about like friendship and imaginary friends are just kind of in some ways like right this very early in co-ed like your like first wish about what it means to have like a best friend who's with you every second of every day and like totally understands you and will never abandon you and like your imaginary friend like doesn't meet other people and like like them more than you and stop hanging out with you as much like it's like it's like a soulmate like it's actually sort of like an erotic it's sort of like a love relationship in some ways I don't know about you, but I loved Mr. Rogers. I unfortunately do not have a clip of my mom reading this, but when I was a little kid, I once told her that Mr. Rogers was my best friend. Which brings me to 143 means I love you. You know the code, 143. I finally Googled 143 to see what the internet had to say about it, and this is what I found. Fred Rogers considered the number 143 to be a very special number. He once said, it takes one letter to say I, four letters to say love, and three letters to say you. 
143. In fact, he liked the number so much that he maintained a weight of 143 pounds for the last 30 years of his life. Eccentric Earth Monster. <laughs> I'll read from their website. 143 Club is a tribute to Fred's wonderful legacy of love. The club provides important financial support to the center, sustaining programs that are built upon Fred's deep and simple approach to child development. For $143 a year, or 10 monthly payments of $14.30, you can join the 143 Club and help children become confident, competent, and caring. If you'd like to donate to the 143 Club, you can find them at www.fredrogerscenter.com dot org backslash get dash involved backslash one four three dash club what strange coincidental fodder for my delusional fire one four three means i love you and if you have love for the show and you want to support us you can send one dollar and 43 cents to at your necessary delusion on venmo and we will feel that love we are back this is act two with a new story friendship still the delusion or maybe a little bit more than friendship. I have a very special treat for us today. Here to flush out this idea of an imaginary friend is your necessary delusional guru of manifestation, Reina Amaya, coming to us from her very own recording studio closet just outside of London. When I was 23, I had an imaginary boyfriend. Clearly, we can't start there. Let me back up. When I was 23, I got my first real job out of college. And uh, it was really exciting. It was my first time kind of like in an office and coworkers and the whole thing. This environment can be very persuasive in making you believe that you're an adult. You know, I was still trying to find my way. I was young, trying to figure out how I fit in, where I fit in with coworkers, all of that. And the company that I worked for was getting ready to have their Christmas party. And really, it wasn't a Christmas party. The company was getting ready to have a Christmas dinner. I think we can agree dinner is much more intimate and grown up than a party. And for the Christmas dinner, you were allowed to bring a plus one. Now, a lot of folks were being encouraged, obviously, oh, please bring your significant other, bring your partner, bring your wife, bring your husband. So at the time, I was semi-seeing somebody. Delusion! Literally semi-seeing. Like maybe had gone on one date. Maybe. Sounds like a stretch. But I just decided to invite him to this Christmas party. Because this guy, whom she had gone out with on one date, was kind of like a superhero. <laughs> At least that's how I picture him. He was like six foot two, dark and dangerously handsome. He had abs, like real abs that he had worked for. This guy was ready to take his shirt off at a moment's notice. He also had this very impressive high profile job and he had to travel a lot. They'd gone out on one date and Raina suspected that he may be playing the field and was also potentially out of her league. Delusion. But they had had a good time, so she invited him to the party as her plus one. Well, he made such a hit at this Christmas party. The men wanted to be him and the women wanted to be with him kind of a thing. I mean, him and my boss were cracking up, him and my other co-workers having little side jokes and conversations. Everybody was like all eyes on him, talking to him. It was great. It was fabulous. Even her office BFF, who was a lesbian, thought he was gorgeous. So the next Monday, the first woman that came up to me in the office and asked, oh my God, your boyfriend was so great. How is he? I never corrected her. 
I didn't say, oh, no, actually, we're just casually dating. And, you know, it's actually that was like our second date. I didn't get into any of that. Everybody's like, oh, my God, I just love your boyfriend. Your boyfriend is so cool. Oh, my God. Tell your boyfriend I said hi. How's your boyfriend? Going on and on. And even though she knew it wasn't true, it sounded so good when they said it. I just accepted this lie because to me, my necessary delusion was I need to have a boyfriend. I need to have a partner. And I need to have a really hot, tall, impressive superhero partner because, obviously, it will then make people think that I am sort of also a superhero. I don't love the idea of expanding on Raina's ideas of her own necessary delusions when she's not here. She was nice enough to send me this story, but it feels like a very human inclination to me. If a boyfriend gives you some kind of cosign for maturity and worth, then a really impressive boyfriend that everyone falls in love with instantly boosts the image of you up much higher. Now, in the office, why I wanted to be seen as someone who had a boyfriend was because when this coworker asked me how my boyfriend was on Monday morning, the joy in her eyes, the way that she just looked like she was so happy about my life, she was happy for me, it was basically acceptance. I was finally getting the acceptance in the office that I hadn't really got. It was a it was next level acceptance. We all do this. Imagine if you discovered that your coworker that you really liked was dating a dirtbag. That would reflect on the way that you saw them, right? Delusion. But Raina's little lie was reflecting very, very well on her. All the adults were treating her like an adult. People were now happy for me. It's like before I was like the nice, young, sort of naive, just out of college kind of coworker. Like, oh, she's all Raina. She's, oh, yeah, she's nice. Now after this Christmas party, it was like new levels. It was like I was a normal person. It was like suddenly she had her shit together because we just met her boyfriend and he definitely has his shit together. It's like having a boyfriend, having a partner. Oh, that makes you like normal. That means like you're acceptable. You're cool. Delusion. I think also just like when you're young, acceptance And feeling normal is really important. It wasn't until that moment that my coworker asked, like, how's your boyfriend? Where I was just like, I feel like they like me. They really like me. (laughs) And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to feel that. Plus, the amount of joy and happiness and excitement in that woman's eyes when she asked me about my boyfriend, I was like, I cannot take this away from her. She is so juiced about this being my boyfriend that like literally, and this is also a delusion, I decided to tell myself like I couldn't let her down. I couldn't let her down and be like, actually, we're just dating. And I No, I was just like, he's fabulous. He's wonderful. He had such a great time. Oh, he just won't stop talking about what a great time he had. Oh, my God. And I just I just dove deeper. And it wasn't like before having this imaginary boyfriend, like I felt like an outcast or anything like that in the office. No. But maybe a little bit like she was young Raina, just out of college, playing grown up with all of the real adults at work. I was now in the couples crew. And so it was like, yeah, my wife did it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, my boyfriend. It's so crazy. And I, it's that um, office kitchen 
locker cooler. I don't even know what the word is. <laughs> it's that office kitchen talk. It's the conversations that you have when you're just going to get that cup of coffee or getting going to get extra printing paper from the storage room. I now was in the couple's crew convo talk, which made me feel cool. It was also so nice to now have like a team of people who really wanted my relationship to work. Her imaginary relationship. They were so supportive. <laughs> like, they really wanted it to go well. They were rooting for us. It was just always like, we're such a cute couple. And they were just so happy for us. And they were just so interested in me as a person now. Now that I had a boyfriend. What is that about? Like, I wasn't interesting before. Oh, now, oh, she's in a couple. Oh, she's got a boyfriend. Oh, let's get to know her. I mean, I always liked her before, but let's get to know what he sees in her. And let's also be honest. I also wanted this dude to be my boyfriend. There it is. I did. I did secretly really want this dude to be my boyfriend. And I invited him to the Christmas party, hoping that, like, I was the one who would be a hit. And he would be like, wow, I really like her. But it was more like he was awesome. And everybody was like, that guy's awesome. Yeah, but I did want him to be my boyfriend secretly. And not so secretly. He knew that. But again, he was young. He was kind of trying to play the field and do his thing and whatever. Really nice guy, you know, but it just it wasn't going to amount to anything. Anything. And I think because I knew it wasn't actually going to go anywhere, that was another piece of the puzzle. That was another reason that I was motivated when my coworker said, oh, how's your boyfriend? To just stay in that lie, to stay in that delusion. I was like, oh, this can be the secret space where I actually get to have him as my boyfriend. And I thought that was sane to do. I thought that was totally okay. And so ever since that Monday after the Christmas party, I would I just started telling everybody about my boyfriend. After every weekend, oh, so what did you and your boyfriend do? Was, oh, we went for a picnic. I just painted him to be this amazing dude, which he was, um, and that we were like totally in love. And oh, yeah, you know, I helped his mom out this weekend. Like she needed some stuff done in the gardens. How thoughtful of Raina to help his mom in the garden. She is so good at forging authentic relationships with different types of people. <laughs> What's funny is that Raina actually is exceptional at forging authentic relationships with all different types of people. People. Raina is a superhero in her own right, but at 23 in a new environment, she must have just felt like she needed the boost. We've all been there. Also, like, this dude made it very clear that, like, first of all, we had mutual friends. That's how we kind of, like, met and stuff. But he was focusing on a whole other career path and doing a whole other thing. He knew he was getting ready to have to move soon. So he was not looking for a serious relationship. And so what did I do? I was just like, I'm still going to try to see if I can turn this into a serious relationship. I think we might have gone on like two or three more dates and that's it. And then he ended up moving to another part of the country, whatever, like no bad blood, all good. But he was not my boyfriend. <laughs> he was not at all my boyfriend in real life. But I continued to fabricate our relationship. I mean, literally for like maybe six months. I was just creating this totally fake life. 
like for six months. I mean, it's something, it's an embarrassing amount of time. And so for six months, Reyna, who is a catch herself, got to play pretend that this very hot, charming, impressive, successful guy with abs was her boyfriend. And that's how her coworker saw her. Like she was the kind of woman that could attract this really impressive guy who had attracted them all in one meeting. And this delusion gave her some real shine. I mean, it's really embarrassing to even be telling this story right now. Hmm, vulnerability. Don't lie, Earth Monster. If you haven't made up a boyfriend, you've made up something. In a nutshell, the imaginary boyfriend was the delusion. But the truth behind that delusion that I was covering up was that I, one, wanted a boyfriend. I wanted this guy to be my boyfriend. And when I found a community... (laughs) of co-workers that was willing to participate and perpetuate this fantasy, I ran with it. I was like, let's let it roll. Let's go with this. Overall, just for the goal of acceptance and love and um, wanting to be perceived as normal, which I clearly am not. She is. We all do this stuff. Raina doesn't remember a lot of the specifics about their imaginary breakup. As you know, we often conveniently forget about these parts of our lives. But I'm assuming the office was devastated when she told them. Marcus, why are we friends? That is a that is a great question. We are friends. We are friends. Let me take a stab at it. I really do want to take a stab at it because it feels like a really beautiful question. Well, first of all. I think I met you during a time in my life where being friends with you were, I think, in some ways, a more fully formed person than I was when we met. Delusion! And I really wanted to be the kind of person that I perceived you to be when we met. Like, I was coming off, and I had good friends in high school. Obviously, I'm, like, almost 40 now. I've gone full circle of being, like, I've forgiven myself. I've forgiven them. Like, I was 16. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, I was friends with, like, you know, we were they were kind of, like, burnouts, like, everyone was sort of inhibited, like no one could talk about. Like, I remember my role in the group often was I was like that guy who was sort of like uncomfortably like, guys, we're all, we're all like best friends. Like, I really love you guys. And everyone would be like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, it was like, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't really like, I wasn't like on the same emotional tip with a lot of them. I remember when we would all say goodnight to one another and we were hanging out, we would all like fist bump each other. And it was like so erotically charged because everyone wanted to be like, Tonight was a great night. I love you guys. But like no one could say that because you would get you would just be like pillared, you know. So we would just have these goodbyes that were like so intense. And I remember even at the time being like, why is it so intense when we all say goodnight? But it was because like we all probably loved each other so much, but none of us could admit that. But then I met you and you were like very emotional. You were very disinhibited. You were very open and you were like open to having the kind of friendship that we're described. You were open to having the kind of friendship where it's like, let's be like best friends and like be together forever and like tell each other everything and like respect each other. My memory of you is that you were really like that. You were very warm. You were like, you really embraced me. You know, it was like you were selling a kind of friendship that I like would desperately wanted to buy. So uh, you did a great job. Um, so that was a lot. That was a lot. I thought about this before. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny was the reason that I asked that is because I just saw a video from Simon Sinek, who is the find your why guy. Simon Sinek is the guy who created the Start With Why program, where he helps people discover their whys. That's W-H-Y, which is like your timeless mission in life. If you listen to the episode of this show called My Mess, My Mission, 
I talk about finding my why through that program and the way that I use this podcast to express my why. Anyway, Simon has all different techniques to help people find their whys, and I recently saw a video online where he explained one of them. He said to talk to your friends, your best friends, the ones that you can call up at three in the morning and they'll be there. Call them up and ask them, why are we friends? Simon describes the way that many people will shy away from this question and how you need to keep on them to answer. Don't help them. Push them until they stop trying to describe you and they start to describe themselves and the way that you make them feel. And the sum of the answers that you get from those few good friends will give you a pretty good idea of your why. But Marcus didn't take any wrangling. It was really pretty beautiful the way that he ran right at the question, which is actually the reason that I would say that we are friends. Marcus is always up to having the big conversations. That's his baseline. Ever since we met when we were 18, I can always count on Marcus to hash through the chaos, organize it, and unearth the truth. I will try to shoehorn the idea a little bit more. I feel like you you sort of said that I celebrate my vulnerability, which is my why. This is a good, this is a good right? season finale. Yeah, totally. I think you have great parents who were really emotionally available. And um, I think so many people spend so much of their adult lives trying to get underneath all of the like weird shame and bullshit and like uh, woodenness or sort of concretizing thing of being like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's okay. I'm good. Like to get to some sort of like deep core aspect of who they are. And I think for whatever reason, like you, you've always been a person who was like, you're, you've always been very connected to that part of who you are. And so, I mean, it, it really opens up your ability to where you don't have to spend 20 years just being like, can I have a feeling like you're, you're already through all of that. And so, I mean, it allows you to kind of leap ahead in some respects. I felt like a bit of a loose cannon when Marcus and I met. At my worst today, I feel like a loose cannon. What he called warm and open, I called boundaryless and messy. He's right though. Feelings were never the problem. I've always been very accepting of having lots of feelings, and I can talk about them too, but Marcus makes me feel like I can bring order to them. His acceptance and support and insight makes me feel like I can dig underneath, find the truth, and organize it for optimal understanding. And when we met when we were 18, it was much simpler than that. Marcus made me feel like we could just figure it all out. I've always admired you in terms of just like, you're very smart, you're very articulate, I feel like you find order to things. I can throw a bunch out a bunch of chaos and I feel like you can uncover the truth in the chaos. Mm. It's interesting that the reasons that you and I are friends are so central to who we actually already, who we sort of are as people. At this point, it's been so long that I don't know which comes first in like sort of a chicken or egg kind of way, but but that idea that like I'm a therapist, like what you're describing right. is also sort of like my work in a way, which obviously I could do before I started doing this for a living. That's why I do it for a living. And that, you know, what drew right. me to you was sort of this aspect that has drawn you to like the podcast itself. I mean, it's not surprising, I guess, now that I'm saying it out loud, but right. Fundamentally, what allows us to be friends is very central to who, to who we are, which is maybe why it lasts. Like it's very connected to the architecture of who we are. It's not like, oh, we're friends because you have like a red Mercedes. Like it's like you, it's very fundamental to like very set core aspects of who we are. How about mm. the, the therapist doesn't exist without a patient? Right. And the, the patient doesn't really exist without the therapist. No, right? it's true. Yeah. You need each other to play your roles. We met one night at an all-night donut shop, and then we were like best friends the next day. We like hung out every day. 
um, it was very like childlike in that way, but in that way that being childlike is actually like a blessed sort of like hyper sophisticated way to be like part of being an adult is being like uncomfortable, guarded, weird, like boundaried. Like there's that thing about kids where it's like, we like each other. Let's be best friends. And it's like, you don't, you don't need to overthink it or be like, is this guy trying to like steal money from me? Like, you don't have to like worry about any of that shit, you know? And this really is the delusion that is friendship. It's just a name that we put on a shared feeling. But feelings are ever-changing. We never just lock them in and experience them exactly the same for the rest of time. Friendships change. And like everything else, they take maintenance. Making this episode has really made me consider my own delusions about friendship. It actually made me realize all of the stories that I could have told, all of the guests that I could have had, because of all of the friendships that I have left behind, all of the real friends that I haven't always treated like real friends. The times that I have allowed myself to be transitional and imaginary in friendships. It makes me think about the moments that I have not been a great friend to Marcus and how many times I have let my unconscious bias get in the way of being my best self. Marcus, thank you for doing this first season with me. Can I get any takeaways from you? I guess in some ways it's like pleasurable to me to just hear you go through this kind of storytelling exercise with other people. In season two, I'll try to refine my perspective on the psychotherapy component to, to the work that you're doing. That idea that every stranger that you encounter is someone who has had like kind of unbelievable, strange, frustrating, or just like grotesque like things happen to them in their in their lives. It's just, it, it's very humanizing. I find that to be very um, like revitalizing to me personally. I loved your dude from Death Jam. Uh, Doughboy told an incredible story and was it found it very moving also. I loved the woman, I think this was a two-parter, the woman you went to high school with who met the dude online. Because that whole story was like, obviously this is is going to work out. He's going to become abusive. He's going to be awful. That was like a special story. Your cousin who talked about her uh, Crohn's disease, that one's not fair because I mean, I know her, but it was like incredible to hear her tell that story. And she's just like a lovely person. I feel like I could just like go through the list and just say something nice about all of those episodes. So I spare you that. I want to give a big thanks to Marcus for spending so much time with us this first season. I will return to a nugget of truth that he found in our very first episode because I think it's that important for us to remember. You don't ever get to escape the prison of being a person because even when you get exactly what you want, I mean, you just there's just more there's more desire kind of like behind that. A big thanks to Reina for sharing her story today and all of the times that she has brought her voice to us this season. You can find her full episode in our feed called Comedy Dropout. A very special thanks to my mom for reading from her journals today. Mom is a big fan of listening to the show, but was not super eager to share. Mom, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you playing along. This is certainly not the first time. A big thanks to Ryan Fine for all of our music. You can find him at ryanfine.com. Click on custom songs for all of your songwriting needs. My why is to celebrate vulnerability and inspire others to do the same so that we learn to uncover truth and accept our authenticity. If you are at all curious about finding your own why, you can find Simon Sinek's Start With Why program at www.simonsinek.com. Sinek is S-I-N-E-K.
I want to thank you for listening and for all of the reviews that you've written. If you have love for the show and you want to share it, you can send us $1.43 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo. I want to give a big, big thanks to all of my storytellers this first season for your truth and vulnerability and transparency. This is an open door invitation to come back with more delusions, big and small, whenever you feel inspired to share. A big thanks, as always, to Paola Monterde, the love of my life, for helping out so many times with putting these episodes together. If you have a necessary delusion of your own and you want to share it, you can send us an email at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com or reach out to me on Instagram at yesmatthew. I hope you've enjoyed our first 20 episodes. You will find us back here in two months with season two for more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. We'll see you then. Right.